This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, spare a moment, spare a thought, if you will, for Claudette Barnes this afternoon, who has been (laughs) diligently trying her level best to keep people informed on something simple like the weather conditions. See, uh, we broadcasters, you know, it's sunny and two degrees in VOCN Valley, as we used to say one time, Uh, but uh, gosh, Claudette, every time I looked up today... It's sunny. It's beautiful. No, wait. It's raining. No, wait. It's a torrential downpour. No, wait. It's sunny. <laughs> and, you know, as sooner as the words are out of your mouth, it it's changed. changed. Yeah. So it's whatever you said. It's just, it's, a, it's moot. <laughs> At one point, I had to take a picture because uh, Noah Shepard in the newsroom looked yeah. up and he said, oh, look, it's beautiful. And here was the rain, like, pelting against <laughs> the window, and yet the sun was blazing. Right. Anyway, there you have it. Glad I'm not a meteorologist. (laughs) Spare a moment for Claudette Barnes, ladies and gentlemen. She's been at this a long time, and I say this is probably... Well, I'd like to say it's a first. It's probably not, (laughs) is it? Let's be honest. Let's be brutally honest. Yeah, no, it's not. We live in St. John's, Newfoundland, folks. Anyway, there you have it. <laughs> um, I can't tell you what it is out there now. I'm looking at it now, and I'm not even going to venture a guess. Well, parents and students protested outside Frank Roberts Junior High this morning to bring attention to what they say are the deplorable conditions at the aging school. Among those who turned out for the rally were members of the official opposition. Of course, uh, Barry Petten and uh, Paul Din both represent uh, districts that uh, sort of overlap in that general area. Uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan was there and had a chat with him. What do we want? If I get you to go back a bit. When do we want it? Now! When do we want it? Green school! When do we want it? Now! now! Mr. Petten, you know, you've been advocating for this for a couple of weeks now. What's your reaction to what you've heard here at the protest and what you're seeing? Well, it just validates the concerns. These people are not showing up for no reason. These concerns are real. As a matter of fact, there's been over two weeks. I've been at this for a year and a half now, advocating for repairs and replacing this school. Unfortunately, government are not listening. The uh, big problem government got to do, their messaging is terrible. They need to, this dismissiveness is not cool. It's not, it's not what these people expect. It's not what I expect. It's not what anyone should expect. And these, when you got rodents, you got moist, you got overcrowding, you got no cafeteria, you got a building that's way past its best before date. Government needs to take this more seriously, and I really think their messaging is terrible. And I say this, I've sold them all them privately, and I'm saying it publicly. Their messaging is really bad, and they need to take some acknowledgement. People want some hope, and they got to offer some empathy to people, and they're not giving it. And and people are frustrated. And it's galvanizing the movement, and the minister and his officials need to come, you know. Uh, listen to listen to what's being said. This, these issues are real. I don't see any representatives from government here. What do you make of that? Uh, uh, that doesn't shock me. No, it doesn't shock me. I mean, I invited the minister to come out on no, several occasions, come out and attend the protest, and actually tell the people here what he's saying in the House of Assembly, say it in person. But of course, that that never happened. So it speaks volumes, I guess. It's, it's dismissiveness, and they're, you know, I guess because we're, we're we're not on the government side, we're we're not uh, we don't, we're not worthy of a new school. But I beg I beg to differ on that, and I'll keep this fight going. The school, like say. It's 
was built in the 60s. It's, it's outdated, really. It's Class sizes are a problem. You've got 33, 34 teenagers jammed in classrooms. Air quality is a huge issue. We have no cafeteria. There's no cafeteria for a school with 650 children. Just think about that in itself. Air quality is coming up. I'm talking to people. There's mold showing up in parts of school. The bathroom floor, I'm told, in the, in the boys' washroom needs to be investigated. There was a sewage leak here last year. People were walking around with their children were going around with their sneakers on, walking for sewage. And the cleanup was done uh, for, I suppose, surface cleaning, but it's not adequate. And, uh, and uh, I mean, these concerns are real, and I wouldn't want my child going there, and none of us should, really. Do immediate remediation. I know there's some repairs now, but it's only surface things, and plan for a new school. I mean, it's going to take several years for a new school, so you're going to have something on the interim to, to make this school safe. But one big thing they should do is offer some outside entity to come in and do a proper health and environmental inspection of the school, non-government related, and then provide those results online for all to see. That will give some kind of assuredness, but ultimately this school got to be replaced. It's way past its best before date. Jim Din, here at the rally, what, what do you make of what you've heard and, and what you've seen here so far? Well, I would say if Minister Hagee doesn't hear this, then he is truly deaf to the uh, concerns of uh, the parents, the students, the teachers, and the staff who work in this school. Uh, I visited this school when I was NLTA president, and even then there was a, uh, it was a, need, of, there was a need of work to be done. <clears throat> it's obviously gotten worse. Uh, and I think very clearly, if we're looking at prioritizing schools, this is one that needs to be addressed as a, uh, rather than, let's say, building a, a new school in uh, Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, that wasn't requested. Uh, and that will affect another school's programming as well once it uh, comes in place. So I think here's, uh, to me, I've always been uh, looking at the learning conditions, the teaching conditions, the working conditions of, uh, of the people who are in, in that building. Very clearly, I think when we go back to the House next week, the questions will be asked again with regard uh, to uh, Minister Hagee about what he, what he plans to do to address this, this situation at Frank Roberts Jr. High. There is no government representation here, not that we could see anyway. Minister Hagee's not here. What do you make of that? I think, again, it, uh, it speaks to the fact that maybe they're a bit tone deaf or that they don't want to hear this. You know, the motto up there is strive to excel. Well, I think that, uh, that that applies not just to the students in this building, the teachers, but also to government. Strive to excel to make sure that, uh, uh, the, that, uh, the, that the students and the teachers and the staff are given the best working conditions uh, that, they, that they, can, uh, they can work in. And yet we have a premier who's, uh, who, who wants to build a new hospital because we need proper working conditions. Well, here is a school that's in desperate need of attention. Maybe a new school, but until there's a new school built, the, the de deficiencies in it need to be addressed and need to be addressed ASAP before the new school year, for sure. You're a former teacher, and as you mentioned, former NLTA president. What, do these con what effect do these types of conditions have on the ability for teachers to teach and students to learn? If it comes down, look, for the most part, I taught at Holy Heart, an older school, but it was well kept. But at least you knew that it was sanitary, that the uh, that the uh, that you felt safe, uh, that the uh, that there was you had uh, properly uh, a proper a properly uh, supplied uh, a lab, sorry. But you also had a cafeteria where students could go. You had a, you had a lot of issues that made the they made the teaching. Uh, teaching experience i guess and learning experience for students such more much more uh what shall i say uh, profitable i guess for lack of a better word but people uh, you can enjoy it 
I think, if nothing else, when you're going, when you're crammed into a cafeteria that, well, that, that doesn't seem to exist here, or a gymnasium that can't, can't support uh, the two classes, which is the way it goes now, it, that, that tells me it, it, that it's impacting the learning and it's impacting the ability of teachers to teach as well. And that was, I sorry, I, I said Paul Din. It's Jim Din, his brother, a leader of the NDP, along with um, Barry Petten, who is the uh, MHA for Conception Bay South outside Frank Roberts Junior High this morning, where a protest was held by both parents and uh, students. Well, coming up, what do proposed changes announced by the federal government this week, um, proposed changes to bail conditions mean? We'll speak with a local solicitor. This is News Talk on V. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. Well, proposed amendments to the Criminal Code of Canada intended to make getting bail tougher for violent repeat offenders have been highly politicized of late. The federal government announced this week proposed changes in response to growing concerns about violent crime in a number of jurisdictions across Canada. Critics say the new amendments do little to prevent violent repeat offenders from being released and committing more crimes. Mark Grushy, a solicitor with the Special Defense Unit of the Newfoundland and Labrador Legal Aid Commission is on the line. So we have this uh, situation that evolved this week with some changes uh, or proposed changes announced to um, bail in Canada. But I guess it begs the question, how, how does the bail process work up to now? Okay, so yes, those those changes are interesting and they are significant, and they're I think some of the most significant changes we've seen in a good number of years uh, with respect to bail. But as a basic uh, background, uh, bail works like this in Canada. Uh, the Constitution uh, protect, gives us all the right uh, not to be denied what's referred to as reasonable bail without just cause. So in practice, uh, the way the criminal code operates is the vast majority of people who are charged with the majority of criminal offenses who would find themselves in a scenario where they had to go through a release process, which certainly wouldn't be everyone, but for people who have to go through it, um, that's a standard onus situation, meaning the Crown has to prove why the person should be held, not the other way around. Uh, most of the time when a person goes into a bail process and the Crown has to prove why they should be held, uh, I would suggest the Crown tends to consent release them because normally they cannot prove why they should be held. There are certain classes of offences and circumstances, though, called reverse onus uh, situations. And a reverse onus bail uh, hearing, as defined by the circumstances of the offence or the section involved, is practically much more difficult for uh, an accused person to get bail on because they have to prove why they should be released, not the other way around. So at the underlying test is the same, but the person who has to prove things changes. And in practice, if you have to prove why you should be released, you are more likely to be denied bail. Um, whether or not a bail procedure is going to be the regular burden of proof or the reverse onus situation is a really important consideration when you're running a hearing. So this new law creates new reverse onus situations, which are quite common. And I think it'll have impact uh, of, a, of a significant degree. So is bail um, is something that is offered to everyone or are there um, circumstances where, where bail is waived? Um, all, well, I'll put it to you this way. All Canadians have a right to be given reasonable bail and c cannot be denied reasonable bail, I should say, without, without uh, a just cause, right? So, yes, everyone who is arrested has a right to a bail hearing. 
Um, the way that bail hearing happens and who bears the burden of proof on the hearing varies depending on the offense and the circumstances. The likelihood of success of a hearing is heavily dependent on the facts of the specific case and the antecedents or background of the person who is seeking bail, as well as their capacity to, for instance, bring forward sureties to monitor their community and, and deposit monies and things like that. But yeah, everybody has a right to bail. Absolutely. So how will these new uh, proposed amendments change how things are done now? Uh, will there be certain circumstances where reverse onus will have to be presented, or how, how will that work from here on? Yes, I think the biggest change in the uh, proposed uh, legislative change um, is this. Um, it's amending the criminal code so that if a person has been charged with a serious violent offense involving a weapon, so the maximum penalty of 10 years of imprisonment, if they have been convicted of a similar offense within the last five years, they're now in a reverse onus situation. So the most basic variant of that would be, for instance, assault with a weapon. So to put it in some context, if a person is, is convicted of assault with a weapon but was previously convicted of assault with a weapon uh, within five years, they are now in a reverse onus situation. All right? And that, uh, that is actually quite meaningful. Uh, that, that type of offense now being a reverse onus scenario based on the prior record of the person is significant because quite a number of people who go through the system, I think, would fall within that uh, designation. So that means we're going to see more reverse onus bail hearings. And if, in fact, in that type of offender or accused person, I should say, uh, they're, they're appearing before the court, I would think that if the reverse onus situation exists, the Crown is going to be perhaps less likely to consent to their release, simply because it's, as a practical matter, when the hearing's onus is reversed, it becomes more difficult for the accused to get bail because they have to prove why they should have it, and that affects the litigation process of bail hearings. Uh, that's not the only thing that this bill purports to change. It, in, it expands the number of firearms-related offenses uh, with the reverse onus, and it adds a, a minor uh, change uh, with respect to domestic violence. That is to say, uh, if a person has a prior discharge, meaning not full conviction for an act of domestic violence, they too could be in a reverse onus situation facing new charges of domestic violence within a time frame. Um, I don't think that's going to be massively important, but it could affect a lot of people, for sure. Uh, there are some people who get discharges for um, mild uh, numbers of, uh, you know, mild acts of domestic violence, like a push or a shove, and then later are accused of something more serious, and it appears that they could be caught by this new legislation as well, which could be quite meaningful, right? These changes have been highly politicized, as you know. What do you think is the, is the clearest message uh, that um, you can give from your perspective to those not overly familiar with the process? Um, I, think, I think what's happening, and this is, this is a common... Uh, occurrence in criminal law evolution. Criminal law is an emotional subject for people. So when a perception arises in the community that there is a particular issue or problem or shortcoming, you can see political action on that shortcoming based on that perception, uh, sometimes hastily, in the sense that you know we don't really know substantively what's occurring, but there's a perception. And then, in fact, the laws change to meet that perception. I think that's what's happening now, but I do think and would stress that the way this is in fact done, particularly with the uh, the, the violent crime um, reverse onus situation coming along with reference to past record of a similar crime and all this, 
that is that is I think a meaningful strengthening of the regime uh, because that scenario I think would repeat a, a fair bit uh, and so that hasn't existed before. Uh, I do think it will strengthen the regime overall. But at the same time, I would stress to people, uh, whether they realize it or not, that the vast, vast, vast majority of people are released when charged. The majority of people are never brought before a judge based on the nature of the charge. The majority of those who are brought before a judge are released. The majority of those are released by consent. By the time, I would suggest, you're compelled to have a bail hearing most of the time as a defense counsel, that means you're on the back foot and you're, you're in a bad situation in the sense that it's quite likely you're going to lose. So, um, you know, people should understand how it works. We don't have space in prisons to hold everybody who's charged with a criminal offense, nor should everybody be held based on the nature of that offense. In fact, our remand facilities are overcrowded right across the country, really. Um, we see a great deal of damage done to Indigenous people in particular with their overrepresentation in, in these facilities. And frequently, uh, people don't get bail, not simply because of the facts that are alleged against them, but because they can't put forward quality sureties who will look after them in the community. If you're charged uh, with a, a moderate offense and have any type of moderate negative history and bail is contested in your case and you don't have anywhere to live and you don't have anyone who will take you in and vouch for you, you may spend an awful lot of time in jail waiting for your case to be brought forward. Whereas somebody who, in fact, is charged with something worse and possibly has a worse record or has someone to vouch for them uh, and perhaps something to deposit may very well get bailed. So there's an inherent unfairness in that, in that the demographic circumstances of the person who's before the court matter uh, frequently with respect to the outcome of the bail process. So I think it's important not to go too far with it, but I also think it's important to realize this is a meaningful strengthening of the regime with respect to the commonly occurring scenario of that type of offense being charged with that type of record, namely uh, a violent offense with a weapon with a maximum punishment of 10 years or more. I use the example of assault with a weapon. So. You sort of touched on, on it there, but is there an anticipated impact on our correctional institutions as a result of this change? Um, I, I can't. All I would say is that we have a scenario, and this is very broadly speaking jurisdictionally, the federal government, of course, is responsible for criminal law under our Constitution. They are the primary arbiters and creators of criminal law beyond things like regulatory matters and the things we don't think of as conventional criminal law, though they are. Um, normally, we think of crimes, we think of the criminal code. That's the federal government. Um, the provinces are administering a tremendous amount of corrections uh, you know, work. Uh, there are federal prisons, of course, but there's an awful lot of provincial facilities. So uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you uh, with respect to, uh, you know, whether that was uh, how, how that's going to be impacted or, or if anything was done to determine if it's in fact possible, to, how it's going to affect the system structurally. Um, I can tell you that I think it's common sense that remand facilities right across the country tend to be strained. That's been the case for many, many years. It's not specific to any one place. The reason for that is an, a lot of people are not getting bail, right? Uh, we currently have a, an image that everybody's getting bail who, who doesn't deserve it. The reality is it's just not the case, you know. Um, in my experience, uh, people who shouldn't get bail, in, you know, legally tend not to. Uh, that has been my consistent experience as somebody as, as a defense lawyer for well over a decade. I think the bail system works pretty well normally. Uh, you're always going to have issues where, you know, uh, things can't be perfectly predicted. But by and large, it's pretty predictable, and it's it's reasonably easy to say when you think someone's going to get bail or not, right? 
So um, it's important to realize that um, the system's already throughout the whole country. We just, you know, remand facilities are always crowded. It's been like that for many decades. It's just the way it is. Uh, so we will see a strengthening of the regime. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that everybody has a right to reasonable bail, uh, not unless, you know, justly required not to have it and so forth under the Constitution. Um, and, yes, it, it is meaningful. I mean, I've, I've already spoken to people uh, who think, yeah, that's a perfectly fine reform and there's nothing wrong with it with respect to targeting people with multiple offenses on the record like that, with assault with a weapon and so forth. It's hard to argue against morally. Structurally, it's a more complicated question. Uh, but, yeah, it, it'll have an impact. The regime has been strengthened. Um, I think people should have a realistic understanding, though, of the fact that people are being denied bail when they should have it denied to them. You know, that is happening every day. Mark Grushi, I really do appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. So that's Mark Grushi explaining uh, a little bit about uh, the bail process and how these proposed changes may change that. He is a solicitor with the Special Defense Unit of the Newfoundland and Labrador Legal Aid Commission. Well, uh, we started the show uh, this afternoon with a bit of a protest. Uh, there was another protest today. Dozens of crab harvesters unhappy with their union leadership gathered outside the FFAW offices on Hamilton Avenue this afternoon. The group was hoping to speak with union officials but failed to get any response. Here is outspoken union critic Jason Sullivan who addressed the gathering over the lunch hour. Well, so I don't know what's on the go, but they're all hiding again, afraid to come out and talk to people. People are going fishing, and, and I don't know what they're expecting everyone to do or what we're waiting around for or what's going on. And, uh... So, like, I mean, they're the biggest bunch of cowards you've ever seen in your life. You won't come and tell us what's going on. And I don't know what, what the plan is or what everyone wants to do. I really don't know. There's tons of people messaging me about having a protest or having a demonstration. And then, you know, we get a hundred or so showing up. So, you know, the whole reason we're in this mess is you won't tell no one what's going on. And what, like, what, what is the plan? We're going to tie on for six weeks and not get one penny? I don't know. It's embarrassing. And, and, and then they're going to say, oh, sit tight and keep waiting and keep waiting. Waiting for what? So, I don't know if we all want to go up to the minister's office up in Strawberry Marsh Road. See what the hell is going on, because there's no one in here. Everyone knows. We should have known that before we came, or they're a bunch of cowards. We're only here peacefully. There's 20 or 30 people on that inshore council elected that nuisance to be president, and they should be here too to wear this, because they're the reason we're in this snarl. And that's uh, Jason Sullivan speaking to a group of a uh, couple dozen uh, crab harvesters, uh, close to 100 or 100 so there outside FFAW offices on Hamilton Avenue this afternoon in response to, uh, I guess, the turmoil that's taking place in the fishery as we speak. Well, coming up, Heritage Newfoundland and Labrador makes a road trip to the West Coast. This is News Talk on VOCN. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. And we're back. Well, members of Heritage NL made a recent trip to the province's west coast to survey and document a number of buildings related to important local industries. When we think of Heritage, we tend to think of, uh, you know, the, the big fancy houses or church buildings or the like. Well, there's a lot of Heritage in Newfoundland and Labrador that's being lost almost on a daily basis uh, because they tend to be a little bit more utilitarian. Well, Andrea O'Brien joins me now. Well, Andrea, hello. 
How are you? Great. So you made a recent trip to the West Coast. What kind of things did you have a look at? Oh, we did a lot of stuff on the West Coast. Um, One of the main reasons we went was to um, start the Humber Valley Skills Inventory, which is part of uh, Humber Valley Thriving Regions project through the Harvard Center. And um, part of that is identifying people in the area who have particular skills, like craft producers, but also things like bakers, farmers, foragers, uh, printmakers, beekeepers, basically anyone who has skills and knowledge about the making of, of everyday objects and would like to pass that on. So that particular project is going from Steadybrook Steady to Howley. And we had uh, several community meetings where we were talking to um, makers in the area. And uh, that stretched uh, from Cormac uh, into Dare Lake, Pasadena, those areas. And it's great to get out there because that particular part of the province, um, you know, has skills uh, that differ from many regions. You know, there's a lot of farming area out there. Um, it's uh, much more of an agricultural area for sure. So it was great getting out um, to kind of explore those aspects of our culture. And different kind of uh, settlement patterns and waves than, let's say, the eastern side of the island as well, I would imagine. Oh, for sure. I mean, we visited Howley and uh, got a great tour of Howley from um, the mayor and one of the councillors out there. And, uh, you know, we got to see Main Dam that feeds into the Deer Lake um, hydro plant. Uh, we got to see some of the types of housing that would have been built for what would be a very industrial past. Uh, we went up to Cormac, uh, which was settled in the 1940s as a farm settlement, and the original farmhouses are still there all throughout the community. So it's places that have a much a much different, um, I guess, founding story and a, a much different continuing story than you know those places along the coast in Newfoundland. And we went out to um, Millville out in the Codroy Valley and visited an old building that used to be a carding mill. And again, that's a, a different. It's a different story than uh, you know people often think of when they when they think of the province. So it was great to get out there and see those different aspects of our culture that don't always get the amount of attention that they should be getting. Anything uh, stand out that uh, is a, a priority for Heritage NL to ha- to to get special recognition of? Uh, well, in general, um, you know we've been trying to focus on those areas that are underrepresented in terms of what has been designated so far. We have over 40, almost 40 years, sorry, our 40th anniversary is next year. So there's almost 40 years of designations. And a lot of those are those buildings associated with the fishery, um, you know, fancy merchant houses and uh, bigger fishing uh, properties, fishing premises, the big fancy churches. So I think that was kind of the accepted types of things that were designated, not only here in this province, but right across Canada, were those, you know, so-called grander buildings. But we're recognizing that those designations did leave out a huge chunk of our heritage. So we are concentrating, or trying to concentrate on those areas and those aspects of our heritage that are underrepresented in designations to this point. So more industrial-type buildings, 
that kind of thing? Well, things that represent, you know, there's a logging industry that's uh, very underrepresented in terms of things that are designated. There are some some buildings in uh, Grand Falls and Cornbrook that have been designated that are connected to logging, but there's logging happened in, you know, in many communities in the province. Um, things associated with that industrial past. We have very few industrial-type buildings that were designated in the province. And also those, um, you know, the farming uh, tradition. Uh, again, there's very few buildings recognised in connection with farming in the province, either large-scale farming or, you know, smaller uh, kind of family holdings. So it's the types of things that we, we realise need more recognition um, is it because, you know, when we think of history, we think of hundreds of years, but history soon becomes 50 years or 20 years. And, and now some of these, um, I suppose, structures and, and industries that we think of as relatively modern have now become historic. Yeah, and our, our designations, and that's kind of a, a, a misunderstanding as well about, you know, that a building has to be extremely old to be designated, that it has to be hundreds of years old. Um, our designation process, what happens is owners of buildings send in applications to us. Um, we're a crown corporation of the provincial government, and we have a mandate to designate on a provincial level. So those buildings are looked at by a committee and then looked at by our board. And age is only one consideration. Um, also is the you know structural and architectural integrity of the building, and also that associated heritage associated culture uh, with that building so a lot of times um, I guess you know like there is that misunderstanding that oh it's not old enough to be a heritage place but we have um, some buildings designated that were built in the 1950s so it's not necessarily just the age of a building there's more factors that go into something being declared a heritage building is it um, important to be on the road and, and see these things for yourself? It, I think it's very important for us to be on the road and to get out to different regions. Um, and I know, like, for myself, you know, our offices are in St. John's. You don't always get that opportunity sometimes, you know, there's our own budgetary restrictions that we can't be on the road that much. But when we do get on the road... You know, it, it, there's certain things that I have my own particular interest in. For me, it is more modern architecture and industrial architecture. And to get out to those places to see what's actually there and have an understanding of it, it's, I think it's essential to what we do. Andrea O'Brien, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And on, Andrea O'Brien is with Heritage NL. When we come back, it was a big day today for anybody with any interest whatsoever in tennis. And we'll tell you why when we come back. This is News Talk on VOCN. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back on uh, News Talk. And um, it was a big day for tennis fans and players right across Newfoundland and Labrador following the arrival today of the Davis Cup. For those who do happen to follow tennis, that prize is as big as it gets. And it's the sports equivalent of the Stanley Cup. And I don't know how much you know 
know about uh, Tedis uh, Claudette, but no, my... just old names. Well, <laughs> <are> I'm tired, <laughs> right? Like uh, Novak Djokovic <laughs> and uh, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, oh, Bjorn Borg, What is it? Navratilova. Martina Navratilova. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of that? Right. Right. Uh, Serena and Vil- Venus Williams, of course. Yes. Who just recently did Re- they did they retire? I they know retired. Serena did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just uh, absolute like peak athletes and fun to watch (laughs) i you know i don't enjoy watching a lot of sports on tv if i could go to a match i would but not to watch it on tv i just to me it's i can't but for other people, yes. It must be fun at places like Wimbledon or whatever. Oh, yes. In the if you're doing something like that, for sure. I, I think of the Seinfeld one, right? Where they're all going right, left, left. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> left. But I mean, I was watching uh, tennis last year, not really following mm-hmm. it because I, I'm, I'm still not very familiar with any of the players and that sort of thing. But just sort of watching it out of general interest. And uh, it's uh, pretty pretty intense it is i feel that there's a lot of you, you know you feel that it, it's palpable yeah. coming through the screen when, when you see them and sometimes they're just having conversations with themselves psyching themselves up and yeah. and also uh, some of them look it, it almost looks like it's it's an act to try to make the other player feel intimidated yeah i think there's a little bit of showmanship so yes to speak. showmanship and and then the, that aggressive you know when they hit the ball and the, you know yes, they make the noise the guttural and stuff. noise yeah. yeah and some of them do it more than others mm-hmm. and it and i can feel it watching the game going wow i don't know how i'd feel if i was on the receiving end of that that's tough it's, yeah it, it sounds scary yeah but i mean i used to love playing it one time it was oh. just me and my friends just right had a couple uh, a girlfriend of mine she had a couple of rackets because i think her mother used to play so we used to go out in the street and just banging around a bit and mm-hmm. that sort of thing but it was fun uh it's very you know yeah active. it's very active you, you have to be in top shape to chase around that ball on a big court good knees as my husband says oh look at those knees (laughs) they all got badminton would be more of my thing well yeah badminton is great fun not nearly as cutthroat i suppose but you know it depends who you are and who you're playing i guess true (laughs) but for the very first time in its 120 year history canada has finally won the davis cup that happened back in the fall uh and as a result the cup is being toured across the province similar to what happens when there's a Stanley Cup win usually the Stanley Cup gets moved around to where you know the hometowns of where all the the players of the uh, of the NHL game uh, game winning uh, team belong Uh, well today the Davis Cup which is the equivalent of the Stanley Cup shockingly huge did you see a picture of it i just i i didn't see the picture of it but the description about how it's a meter tall yeah you're not lifting that baby over your head <laughs> let me tell you yeah. you're just going to stand politely next to it and maybe put your <laughs> arm around it smile i don't even think you can get that close to it but it is absolutely massive well it was at the rooms today for a public viewing vocm's richard duggan was there and he tells me it was blocked lots of kids especially there to see it he spoke with tennis player Liam Drover Matinen. I competed at a fairly high level myself, and I know how much hard work goes into this, you know, winning the Davis Cup. And uh, what I do is doesn't hold a candle to what they do. And so it just, it, the trophy itself just represents hard work and dedication to the sport that is unfathomable to me. How big of a feat is it for Canada to bring home this trophy? Well, 
I would say that it is 100% the best Canadian male tennis achievement of all time and definitely up there with Canadian tennis or Canadian athletic achievements of all time. So I as a tennis player, I can understand the hard work and I would say that it's definitely up there with any great achievement in sporting history for Canada at least. How long have you been playing? Uh, I started when I was three, uh, but I mean, that's just recreationally. In terms of uh, competitively, I started when I was seven. I think my first tournament or one of my first tournaments is when I went away to Montreal uh, when I was seven. So, What has the sport of tennis meant to you in your life? Uh, well, I mean, my whole life has been designed around tennis. Uh, last year, I traveled for 10 months of the year, and uh, I went online school to focus on tennis when I was in grade six. So I have dedicated the vast majority of my childhood and life to this amazing sport and uh, I think it's really given me a, a pedestal to build my life around and uh, build myself around. Now, you mentioned during your speech that uh, you believe that tennis has been sort of an underrepresented sport in Canada. Um, we have a lot of little kids here today. What, what do you think it means to have so many eyes now on the sport of tennis and hopefully getting more interest in the sport? It puts it, uh, it puts it on a level where it brings in more people to the sport, and uh, that's just better, like beneficial for uh, developing champions. It's no secret that you need a lot of numbers to figure out who's going to be good at the sport. And uh, aside from just developing champions, I mean, it's good for recreation. Tennis is an amazing sport that you can play from the time that well, you're three until you're ninety. I see, I there's 95 year olds playing tennis down in florida and it's no surprise because it's an amazing sport you can dedicate your life to it and whether that be competitively or recreationally it's just an amazing game that everyone should get involved with i think at least and uh this accomplishment is only giving a a platform for it to be advertised so i think it's amazing now you compete at a high level yourself is that trophy in your future do you think it's not out of the question. I would say in my near future, in the next year, maybe not. But uh, give me five years, it's not out of the picture. So there you go, something to strive for. And Liam drover and uh, um, making a name for himself locally in tennis. And hopefully we'll see his name a lot more frequently on the national scale as well. That's confidence. I love that. Very dedicated to the sport. Obviously loves it as he just indicated. <laughs> it's still so hard. Like, I would be intimidated by just the distance you would have to go if somebody were to ram that uh, tennis ball on the other side of the court. Exactly, and you see them running from one end of the court to the other sometimes yeah. dozens and of times. Their bodies are in a so perfectly fit to be able to just go after that. I mean, yeah. hats off to them. I play Wii ten- tennis, Wii sports. <laughs> And I love it. But again, I don't. I could even trick it so that you don't really have to move your legs. You just move your your wrist in a certain way, and I can <laughs> beat my opponents. But Ed, I don't think it's the same oh, thing. I thought you know maybe with a bit of practice. Is there I a could... Davis Cup for we? <laughs> Somehow, I think not. <laughs> now, um, you were told me during the break. You said I said let's talk about tennis. And you're like oh, uh, I don't know a lot about tennis. No, so uh, neither do I. But uh, what do you know about dogs? Oh, yes. Yeah. I love dogs. A little more up your alley? A little bit more up my alley, yeah. Well, you're going to want to be in Torbay this weekend. There's oh, a dog show coming up. Is there? Yes, there is. <laughs> and I'll tell you who's going to tell us more about it. Rhonda Cody is with the Avalon Kennel Club, and uh, she's waiting on the line. Well, hello, Rhonda. Hi. So you have a pretty busy weekend plan. What's going on with the Avalon Kennel Club? 
uh, we have our first first show of the season. Um, so it's going to be confirmation, which is pretty much um, dog show. So that's like what you think of when you think of a dog show. Dogs are running around. The judge is like touching them all over. They're competing against each other, competing against different breeds, things like that. And um, then we also have obedience and rally. So that's um, like dogs do obedience. So they like, they run around, they jump over things, they retrieve dumbbells. Um, they need to follow signs with their handlers. Like we're super excited. So are these all purebreds or do you have some other types no. of dogs? Yeah. Um, in the confirmation, so that's um, the dog show, that part is all for only purebred dogs who are registered within the Canadian Kennel Club. However, uh, with the obedience and the rally, any dog in good health can join us. And uh, yeah, so... That's where that goes. Well, that's great. Uh, if mine uh, behaves, then I could <laughs> bring her up. <laughs> yes. And we do rally classes. We do it all. And um, we even do a CGN. So that's like a canine good neighbor. And it's put off by the Canadian Kennel Club. It's not being held this weekend. But any dog, doesn't have to be a registered purebred dog, can uh, get that title. So that's something that people really are interested in also. It's like a temperament test of sorts. So any uh, breed in particular that seems to be a little more popular in this region than others? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I, I guess Shih Tzus are always popular. Um, myself, I have German Shepherds. Um, one of the girls on our board has Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, um, Golden Retrievers, there's uh, oh one breed that's not popular that we do have within our kennel club, and she's actually on our board. It's called a Commodore, and it's a um, livestock guardian breed from Hungary. And if you can picture a hippopotamus with a coat like a gigantic mop, that's pretty much what you got. And um, they're livestock guardians, so they like guard for sheep and uh, wild animals and things over in Hungary. And her Commodore is the top in Canada. Wow. Yeah. I've never heard so, of the Commodore. I've I've heard of yeah, poolies, uh, Hungarian poolies. Are they like that, right. only bigger? So very, uh, very similar in the look, but bigger. And uh, it's a different kind of temperament, you know. But, but yeah, you can definitely haul up Google and see pictures of Commodores or follow us on Facebook. I think there's a few of them. And we always make the joke, you know, like, oh, flying mop, <laughs> et cetera. But, um, yeah, it's it's pretty neat. I think I've seen the pictures now that you mention it. Is it like yeah. like the animal on the front of the Odelay cover from Beck? I can't picture that. I'm a music fan, so <laughs> okay. I think some people would know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, anybody can, you know, take it all in? A hundred percent. So um, it's all strictly ran on volunteers, and we are so grateful for that, that we can have a canteen and we can have um, different things. We have a few uh, vendors there that are selling, like, dog supplies and stuff like that. So our doors open 8 a.m. Saturday and 8 a.m. Sunday, and in the morning there will be the confirmation. And then in the afternoon, there will be the obedience and the rally starting at 1 p.m. both days. And our canteen is open for the majority of that. I believe we're opening between 8 and 4, 8 and 4 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday. 
and it's uh, we are asking for admission. So it's five dollars per person or ten dollars per family. Yeah, and anyone's welcome. However, uh, we ask that they, people don't bring their dogs just just because we kind of we have a schedule of events so dogs that are you know like if you wanted to bring your dog at the next show there's a thing called exposition i can't speak because i just came from the dentist sorry exhibition so um and that's something that you'd sign up for prior to the show well that's great and uh jack burn no, it's um, at the Torbay Commons, so it used to be called the Kinsman Center. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, just off of the Balling Line. Oh, I've gotcha. Well, that's great. So uh, fun yeah. for the whole family this uh, long holiday weekend. 100%, yeah. Definitely well, would be enjoyed. Rhonda, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much and all the best. You're welcome, and thank you for your time. So if you're looking for something to do this long holiday weekend, yeah, that might be something to put on your agenda. The Avalon Kennel Club hosting a dog show this weekend uh, at the Torbay Commons in Torbay. So there you go. I remember as a child, I thought we had to go to Harbor Grace for these particular uh, shows because my mom had, we had a couple of Afghan hounds that were in it. So we enjoyed doing something like that. That's only close by now. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I can remember the the dog shows in uh, Harbor Grace uh, going way back. Yeah. I don't think they do them anymore. They haven't That's done what I was wondering, while. you know, because yeah. this is a very young, old, old memory of mine going there, yeah. <laughs> As it is mine. <laughs> uh, well, Claudette, thanks for that. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Thanks for listening, everyone.